Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, welcome to our podcast today. It is really nice to have you with us. We are back in the book of John. This year B is very interesting because we can't get to Mark quite yet. So we're back into the book of John for the Revised Common Lectionary and we are in John 1 verses 43 through 51. Now as we talk about this today you're going to realize that we have to go back a little bit further to have these verses make sense. So I think if you are jumping into this you need to read before until you get to it to have it make make any sense within its context. Um, And one of the things that uh, I think is really, really central in this is who is Jesus? And uh, my first question today for Alan is who is Jesus and how does John continue to draw this picture for us in his gospel? Well, as you say, I think this, I think this whole passage, this whole latter section of chapter one in John's gospel is a fascinating study in the titles applied to Jesus versus the ones that he acknowledges. In John's gospel, for example, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, which it should come as no surprise. He also uh, calls himself the Son of the Father, often, um, uh, which in and of itself provokes some charges of blasphemy, mm-hmm. along with his claim to be the I Am mm-hmm. who was before Abraham. So um, Jesus has some interesting ways of uh, sort of sidestepping their, um, the titles that they apply to him. And I think part of what's going on in his context is it's the same thing we saw with Mark's gospel that, you know, they came with some preconceived notions about what these titles meant. And Jesus wanted to say he was much, much more than that. I, I think also, though, if we're thinking about um, the situation of, of John's gospel and the community that would read John's gospel, I think part of what the gospel is trying to do is say, these titles are all appropriate ways to understand who Jesus is. Now, the one qualification I would say is, you know, he's called the King of Israel, and I think Jesus wants to make it clear that he is not just the King of Israel. He's the King of Kings, as the New Testament will will call him later. It seems like our our author, John, is trying to also give us these titles kind of up front at the beginning mm-hmm. of his... Well, it's, it's kind of like I said before when we looked at the prologue of John's gospel. Uh, John is kind of, I think he's trying to explain Jesus for an audience that may not have been familiar with some of the categories of of the, the Jewish uh, mindset from drawn from the Hebrew Bible. And so that, I think that's very much what's going on in John's gospel. Mm-hmm. You wonder if there was a bit of, by that point in the Christian movement, if there was a bit of watering down of, of Jesus' identity. Um, I don't know, I don't know about fair. that. I, yeah. would say, I would just say, you know, these were folks who, who didn't come from a background where right. they were schooled in the Hebrew Bible. And all of the concepts that Jesus uses for himself, all of the mm-hmm. concepts that others apply to Jesus are drawn from the Hebrew Bible. You know, I, I'm thinking about this. Um, by the time we get to John, we're going to have a lot of, if you will, potentially second-generation yep. Christians. Yep. Um, that's an interesting thing. So they may have been born into families that had converted yes. to Christianity. born into Christian they, families. Yeah. Yes. So 
they would have come with some different knowledge base than someone who had come from a traditional Jewish family. Um, That's interesting to think about. I'm not sure I've thought about that before. So um, that makes this even more pressing of why John puts this in to this particular part. You know, I've said before, you know, John is historical in that he gives lots of historical details that the synoptics don't. But I think John is also more theological in that Mm -hmm. he's really trying to get at what it means, who Jesus is and what that means for them. We're not to our our reformers yet, but but just to give you a little heads up with Calvin, Calvin believes that one should read John first. Mm-hmm. That John has to be le- the lens by which you look at the other Gospels. So what an interesting... I would disagree with that. I, I, would, I would too, actually. <laughs> but I think that's an interesting, an interesting point Calvin's I think, trying to make. I think somebody who's never read a Gospel, <laughs> they start really off hard. with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and yeah, the Word was God. That's mind-blowing that's right there. That's too mind-blowing. I agree. <laughs> yeah. I, I think a, a more, an easier step would be Mark, to jump into Mark, Mark in particular. Yeah, right, definitely. right. So let's, let's move on to this. Um, John the Baptist gives Jesus... Um, the the title here of uh, Lamb of God. What explain that title? I think that one is got a lot more to it than maybe we we hear on our first sure, meeting. Sure, yeah, and and you know this is interesting because John the Baptist role in the Gospel of John is expanded compared to the the Synoptic Gospels, but uh, that shouldn't be taken to indicate that he was a more important figure. It just means. John's gospel makes him a more explicit witness to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so here he he identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, obviously, when you think about a lamb that takes away sin, you might think of the Levitical sacrifices. Right. But if you actually look into the details of that, um, lambs don't figure prominently in the details of the Levitical sacrifices. We might be surprised to know that. Yeah, <laughs> it's more yeah. It's more bulls and goats than, okay. than lambs. Mm-hmm. More likely, it probably refers to Isaiah 53, 6 and 7, where the servant of the Lord is said to take our sin upon himself like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep. And, and that, that word is the same word in the Septuagint as the, the word in the Greek New Testament here, uh, amnos, uh, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. And, and the reason, one of the reasons why I'm drawn to that is because this, these verses are either quoted or alluded to, well, I, I, they're quoted verbally at least 10 times in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see it especially in Acts chapter 8 and in 1 Peter chapter 2. So the fact that these verses are quoted at least 10 times in the New Testament, to me suggests this is probably a more likely source for John the Baptist calling Jesus uh, the Lamb of God. Obviously, too, I think that becomes part of the imagery of the church. I mean, I think we adopt that later yes, on. Um, it's interesting to think about that it may have a different origin than we once thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I, I, I think that's very astute and, and interesting. Um, more titles. Um, what about the name, the Son of God? Yeah. At the, at the end of this uh, episode, Jesus, uh, John the Baptist attests that Jesus is the Son of God. And as I said earlier, Jesus does refer to himself rather frequently as the Son of the Father uh, in John's Gospel. It's very unusual for him to refer to himself as the Son of God. He does actually do so one time in John's Gospel, in John 5.25. 
Um, he does use the phrase in John 10, 36, but he's there. He's, it seems like it's more a matter of debate. It's more of a hypothetical, mm-hmm. not that he's affirming that. Mm-hmm. And just as a footnote, I'm excluding John 3, 16 through 18 and 35 through 36, because I don't think these are the words of Jesus, uh, but rather they are the commentary of the gospel writer on the words of Jesus up to that point. And I know that that may be a bit controversial that because controversial. we like we like John three like sixteen that, and yeah. we want it to be Jesus right. and it is Jesus except it's Jesus in in the, in the words of John of, of the of the writer of John's gospel. Give us give us some background as to how you came to that conclusion. So if you look at if you look at Jesus' interview with Nicodemus in in the first part of of uh, chapter three, you you find him saying he's talking about. Um, the kingdom of God. He's talking about um, the Son of Man. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Well, that, that language resonates with the language that we hear from Jesus um, not just in John's gospel, but in the other gospels. Mm-hmm. That sounds more like Jesus. Mm-hmm. But um, when he goes on to say, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, one and only son again, only begotten, that reminds us of the prologue, right? right. And so uh-huh. it, it uh-huh. seems to tie it more to the to the writer of the gospel than mm-hmm. to Jesus. So this is more, I think, um, sort of an elaboration on the part of the gospel writer or writers um, than it is, I think, verbatim quote from Jesus. Ah, uh, yeah. And uh, an, an interesting an interesting point I keep thinking about how, you know, how do we determine what has come through the oral the oral mm-hmm. tradition and to what extent if there was a version of this that Jesus said or if indeed this is um put in by that gospel writer to accentuate I, w- I would say this is commentary by the okay. gospel writer okay yeah because the ideas and the wording you know he's called the son of god several times in this in in that, in that yeah. one chapter and that's just if you look at the rest of john's gospel that's not how how jesus refers to himself i mean i'm just keep thinking that that's read in my bible <laughs> I, well that's why i don't believe in red letter bibles i i really think you know i found some real some real uh, bloopers in red letter bibles oh i think bibles. there are a lot of bloopers in them i do they put things in red that really shouldn't be oh dear and a, and a decent translation is going to have a footnote there that right. says that some some scholars believe yeah. that this is uh, the words of and the I gospel. And I think writer. that's you know I think that also attests to being able to read the Greek. And mm-hmm. when you can't read the Greek and you know, especially if you know it's a translation, then in your mind is oh okay, well that's just how they translated it. Now, well, and even if you don't have the Greek, you can use a concordance to look sure. up how many times Jesus uses the phrase "Son of God" for himself. In, in John's gospel, and you find it's not that common. Right, right. And so when you have a cluster of those occurrences here. It's awkward. It, yeah, it, it, I agree. And, and you've got the only begotten son, which ties it to the prologue. Those, those it, things those seem things to point kind in of that point direction. that that's yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. This doesn't mean that John 3.16 is less true. <laughs> right, right. It doesn't mean you can't quote it. That's right. You like it. Okay. Right. Um, another another title is Messiah, and mm-hmm. we have learned in our study before that this this is a, a term that is often misinterpreted, um, and here we see it again. And so, what does it mean now? 
Well, so just just giving some background to that, um, following the episode where John the Baptist gives his testimony, we have uh, what, what you might say is John's Gospel's version of the Jesus call of his first disciples. Mm-hmm. So what happens is basically two of John's disciples follow Jesus. One of them is named Andrew, and he finds his brother Simon, or Peter, uh, telling him, we have found the Messiah. And um, uh, then... Jesus calls Philip, and Philip goes and finds Nathaniel, and so mm-hmm. this becomes sort of the call of his first disciples. Um, now, just again, some interesting backdrop is that in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus calls Simon and Andrew and James and John by the Sea of Galilee. Those are the first four disciples mm-hmm. of, Je- of right, Jesus right. In, in the Synoptic Gospels. Right. And so this unnamed disciple of John that is, that is with Andrew there's a lot of reticence about this John, the son that? of Zebedee, right. in John's gospel. He's called the beloved disciple. Mm-hmm. He's, he's rarely named, and there are a lot right. of places where he ought to be named, and it's just an oblique reference to mm-hmm. the beloved disciple. So this we can't know, but it raises the question whether uh, John, the son of Zebedee, was this other unnamed right. disciple of John yeah. the Baptist. Very interesting. In terms of the literature, um, is that kind of back and forth or is there kind of one group of scholars that tends to believe that it's a definitive well there's we can't know anything definitive about that because uh, it's hard to defend a a theory based on um, a lack of evidence (laughs) right right so um, we can't know that definitively but it's not uncommon for people to speculate about these things and, and right. because you've got some oblique references to decide you know this disciple and then uh, the you know where john the son of zebedee ought to be based on the synoptic narrative right. you know uh, he you just have this beloved disciple some people would would probably say this is just an anonymous disciple and we don't know who it is right and and yet I don't know. I mean, it's probably a more conservative or more traditional view that it, it refers to John the Son of Zebedee. But to me, that when compared with the Synoptic Gospels, that just kind of makes sense. It makes sense. I think that's a historical tradition as well. Yeah. Is that this has yeah. kind of come up as yes, it being is. It is in the it is that. the church tradition. Yes. Um, you know, and of course, that's always that question mark. Does tradition in part make it reality? <laughs> Uh, you know, some historians well, go there. My take on that is, you know, there's some of the church tradition about the figures in the New Testament that is clearly legendary. Right. You and know, that's also part of the pattern in this, right? Right. You know, <laughs> James was known to have camel knees because he prayed so much. Luke was, there's all these things that supposedly the church tradition ascribes to Luke, and we don't have any evidence for any of it. This is a little bit different. I mean, uh, this part makes sense. And so if mm-hmm. the tr- for me, when the church tradition is, is a little more, more conservative about things, right. and it seems to make sense with what we know, I say, you know, I don't know that we have any reason to just toss that out. To toss it out. I yeah. agree. I think that yeah. would make sense with this. Um, so in other words, that was a really long way to say, we don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hopefully you've know, gotten to know us by now that, that we're not going to take the short answer. <laughs> okay. Well, keep now. My question is: We talked about the Messiah before, yep. um, in terms of how Mark used it and Matthew used it, and talking about this figure that would come in that was going to be a military kind of figure mm-hmm. um, that was going to save Israel. Is that still true at the time of John? We just acknowledged that we have a different yeah. audience. Yeah. Or is Messiah taken on a different context? 
Well, let me say probably both and. Okay. Both and. So, again, just a piece of, 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 of background here. The Greek word Messiah is only found in the whole New Testament here and in John 4, 25 on the lips of the, of the Samaritan woman that Jesus encounters at the well. Um, and in both places, somebody else is ascribing this to him. Now, obviously, the Greek translation of Messiah is Christos. And Christ is used over like 500 times in the right. New Testament. This is fascinating. So what, what's that, what are they using in the, in the, in the, in the original, in the um, language? I mean, what? It's Messiah. It's Messiah. It's Messiah. Yeah. Versus Christ, Christos. Versus Christos. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's an, that's an interesting nuance that you aren't going to pick up in your English Bibles unless you happen to get the footnotes that tell you that. Right. I um, mean, hopefully your Bible will translate one the Messiah and one Christ. But um, in the Greek, in the Greek it's, yeah. it's different. We have found ton messian, mm-hmm. which is translated Christos. Right. So it's messias, messias. Is, is the word. And and but it's only used that that Greek word messias, which is a transliteration, right from the from Hebrew, Hebrew mm-hmm. uh, is only used here and in John four, and uh, which again to me says, wow, this is kind of more historical than the Synoptic Gospels because you've actually got people using the transliterated Greek right for him right, <laughs> and a definite I, I think there's a definite emphasis even that it's not used that often that an emphasis on this word here. Um, and I think one of the reasons why it's it's used so often in the New Testament is because it becomes kind of a name for Jesus. It becomes I a mean, name for Jesus. Jesus Christ. Right. I mean, he's called Jesus Christ, or Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ. That's, right. just, that's just found throughout the New Testament. Mm-hmm. However, again, in John's gospel, the only time John, uh, the only time Jesus refers to himself as Jesus Christ, again, this is kind of ironic, is in his high priestly prayer in John seventeen three, he's he's praying to to God that he would glorify the Son and that people would have eternal life through believing in the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of weird to put that on the lips of a prayer. It, it is. <laughs> so it is. I, again, I'm not sure if the if the gospel writer has a hand in that or or not but it's a it's a bit of an outlier it is an outlier it's the only time so i would say again jesus does not use the the term christ for himself in john's gospel well now uh, given the background so in 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 jesus day i would say that the that the expectations of the jewish people were still alive and well And, and the thing about it is we have uh, records from various groups. Um, you know, we have the writings of Josephus, we have the, the Qumran scrolls, and what we find in that is there's a wide variety of messianic expectations. There were a lot of people who expected the Messiah to be a warrior who would come and throw off the Romans and, and, and liberate them. Um, there were, uh, at Qumran, they expected two messiahs, a priestly messiah, who would come and cleanse the temple and restore the sacrifices to they, that they felt were corrupted, uh, and and a political messiah who would who would basically reestablish the kingdom of David and, and ascend to the throne, and so all of these kind of ideas are in the mix behind the phrases "Son of God" and "Messiah" and even the King of Israel, and um, again I think Jesus wants them to understand 
that he's more, much more, much more than that. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll see how that develops here. Let's, let's go on. You, you mentioned another one, King of Israel. We haven't mm-hmm. talked about that one, which is one um, um, that, is, that Nathaniel calls him. Yep. So tell us about King of Israel. Yeah. Um, so we have this interesting interaction between Jesus and Nathaniel. Philip says, we found the one about whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, which probably very likely is an implicit reference to the Messiah also. And Nathaniel is initially skeptical whether anything good can come from Nazareth, <laughs> which um, very likely reflect, re- reflects a bias against Galilee, which is ironic because Philip and Nathaniel are both from Bethsaida, which is in Galilee. Which is, fr- I know, what an interesting <laughs> yeah. thing. You um, might be interested to know that Luther actually doesn't see it with the kind of um, negativity that we read it as, which oh, yeah. I think is interesting. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I don't know why Luther comes uh. at it that way. I think because he sees that because Nathaniel can identify him, it, this can't possibly have any negativity yeah. with it. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Only Luther. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, it, it, is, it is a part of a debate in John's gospel as to whether Jesus could be the Messiah because he was perceived to have come from Nazareth in Galilee. Mm-hmm. And, and so later in John 7:52, they say someone says specifically, no prophet arises from Galilee, you know. Right. So I would say that reflects that kind of thing. But then Jesus tells him he saw Nathanael under the fig tree displaying a kind of prophetic insight. Now, mm-hmm. I've heard it traditionally said that if Nathanael was under the fig tree, that meant he was praying. There's really no basis for that. Uh, Jesus is simply displaying a kind of prophetic insight that that Nathaniel right. recognizes. Right. And so then he acknowledges Jesus as the Son of God, the King of Israel. Well, the only other setting for the title King of Israel in John's Gospel where it's ascribed to Jesus is in John 12, 13, where the crowds uh, use that, that phrase to greet Jesus upon his entry yes, to Jerusalem. Right. Hosanna, Jerusalem. blessed is the one who mm-hmm. comes in the name of the Lord, which is from Psalm 118, and even the king of Israel, which is an allusion to Zephaniah 3.5. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, in John's gospel, in fact, there are many more references to the king of the Jews or your king in the, the passion narrative, and it's used in a derogatory way mm-hmm. by the Romans or the Jewish leaders or the crowds at the crucifixion. So that's really not a very positive title for Jesus in John's gospel. But interesting, it's Nathaniel that he recognizes as being this good Israelite, yep. this 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 true follower of, mm-hmm. of of the law, if you will, as opposed to all those false people out there. It's probably we could go jump farther and say the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right. whom he takes on later. And I so, would say in John's in the context of John's gospel, it's typically the Jews. The Jews, J- right? J- I mean, I realize right. it sounds a bit anti-Semitic, but in John's gospel, it's the Jews who yeah. are. The enemies, the later, opponents of Jesus. A later audience. Right. So that makes sense. Right. And yet here, Nathaniel is like this good example of it. And then mm-hmm. he recognizes him as king of Israel, which kind of suggests that this is someone who's understanding the true prophetic tradition, mm-hmm. right? As mm-hmm. opposed, I mean, that's how I would understand it. Sure. So um, let's um, let's keep going on here. Um, uh, to, this this Nathaniel um, character. Yeah. I think I think there's some interesting pieces about him, um, and that why is it why is it how does why does John ascribe to him so much? 
That's a, that's a good question. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's a good question because he really never doesn't doesn't appear in any of the other gospels no. at all. So it's kind of strange that he comes up. In fact, I think he may be missing from one of the lists of the twelve. I think apostles. he absolutely is. <laughs> yeah. So here's this character that's that's huge for having coming in as a doubter, mm. right? He's he's the doubter that then recognizes Jesus, and he's is kind of a a kind of a big deal. Which you I mean, kind of got some parallelism because at the end of John's gospel, you got Thomas, who's the doubter, Thomas right? Thomas is the doubter. <laughs> I, I do think as we're talking today about the who is Jesus, which is one of the big pieces that John deals with, right. um, that then you have these doubters that yep. are the ones that come to believe and yep. how is it they come to believe. So I think that's a huge, a huge part of this whole identity thing, the names and then these people who are even doubting Jesus is, despite the names. And I would see that as a reflection of John's audience. I think John is John is aware, I think, of people who are questioning this whole uh, possibility of Jesus being a savior figure for, for Israel, as well as for the whole world. And, and some of them may have come from a Gentile background, and mm-hmm. some of them very likely came from a Jewish background. Well, and the eyewitnesses are dying, right? Yeah. So yeah. now it's it's word about it remind it reminds me of of historical things that people who lived through but now people question whether it's right. real. Oh, I know. And so I think this is part of the part of the piece here is saying could be could is be. is saying we have a new group of people we need them to understand. Sure. Now it's interesting though that that I. Th- I read it as it seems like Jesus is poking fun at Nathaniel for his quick change of heart, and he. <laughs> but he goes on and see this is the this is the kick for me, and this is where I find the irony is that the characters in John's gospel, they come to him, including Jesus' own disciples. They come to him using titles like Son of God and Messiah, Christ, and here the King of Israel, and he typically calls himself the son of man or simply the son and and so here we have um the son of man and he says you'll see heaven opened and the angels of god ascending and descending on the son of man and we've encountered that title before and we know that it mm-hmm. comes from daniel 7 13 mm-hmm. 14 where one like a son of man receives uh, power and and authority and and basically the kingdom. He is the one who uh, receives dominion over all peoples and a kingdom that will be eternal. And so I, I really think what Jesus is trying to do with using the title Son of Man is say he's more than what they they thought of as a Messiah. But I think here too, I mean, the allusion to angels ascending and descending. Points Jacob. us to Jacob's Jacob. vision. Mm-hmm. That's right. And at least the way Jacob understood his vision was that that was the place where God's presence dwelt. And so that was where a temple was right. built eventually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps in the context of John's gospel, the idea is more that God's presence isn't found in a place, but rather in a person. Yeah. Yeah. And, and well, Jesus. and, and I, I was thinking, you know, in, in John 1 38 is, is what are you looking for um, instead of who? Mm-hmm. Who are you looking for? I think that's mm-hmm. a really interesting concept. So um, what are you looking for? Mm-hmm. Uh, it implies a lot more than just a person. So right. here we are. Is it is it Jesus the human or Jesus indeed that embodies right. um, who God is, that, that is God? And likewise, where are you staying? I mean, what is strange? Is that, is that a physical place or mm-hmm. is indeed that, mm. in, is that maybe the spirit embodied? Um, mm. In Jesus, right? Where are you staying? Is yeah. that a, is that a literal thing, or is that 
don't you know, know, and that's 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 one that I don't know that we can say. I mean, you know, it's literally where are you abiding? <laughs> right. Where are you abiding? Yeah. Yeah. Which is even in, more interesting mm-hmm. than when are you staying? Where, uh, that mm-hmm. phys- when we say it with this translation, it's it's it kind of implies that physical space, but mm-hmm. abiding. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a word that's used in the Johannine tradition for God's presence as God's well. God's presence, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So cool, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> now. Um, However, and and you know, I've mentioned this before in connection with this, with the Son of Man, but we have it explicitly drawn out for us in John's Gospel, and that is that they simply would not have been able to grasp the phrase "the Son of Man" right. as a title for Jesus. Um, that would have confused them, and we see this in John chapter twelve. After Jesus makes his triumphal entry, you know, then there's a debate about who Jesus is. And, and actually, Jesus tells the Jewish crowd that he was going to be lifted from up, up from the earth. And they answer, you know, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. They're assuming he's the Christ. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They, they don't get they it. They don't get it. They don't make the connection that they he's referring it. to himself. It, and I, I think... If you would think about how rulers refer to themselves, they would never lower themselves to mm-hmm. say "Son of Man," mm-hmm. and I think right, part of this right now is part of that reminder that, that this is a different situation. That this is God humbled, and that just people can't wrap their brains right. around. We still can't wrap our brains. Well, around. and 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 the thing about it is, is that you know I think as I've said before, on Jesus' lips, the Son of Man is not a title of humility. It's a title of divine authority because the one like a Son of Man receives that divine authority from the hands of the Ancient of Days himself, right? And yeah. so um, it, it's not a title of humility. And yet he does allude to his hum- hum- humility by the fact that he's going to be lifted up. So um, right, you know, right. it's kind of both and. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's both and yeah it's both and and what yeah. a strange they and, can't they can't conceive of a figure who would have God's would have would be would have God's authority doing anything other than succeeding at throwing off the yoke of the Romans and reestablishing the kingdom of David they exactly. can't conceive exactly. of a figure in that role as giving up his life that just doesn't compute to them it, exactly exactly and. You know, as I got thinking about this, you know, one thing that strikes me about son of man language as opposed to like a first person, you know, which we do have the mm-hmm. I am statement, but, you know, that I will die, I will do this. It's always son of man. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really telling of, of somebody that is, um, that is not self-absorbed in the kind of way that we think about a human mm. being being. I mean, that's that's yeah. in, in a traditional kind of human sense that this is God and him. I mean, we got both. It's at both and again. Yeah. Um, anyway. Well, and, and as I read it, it's, it's you know, again, I think Jesus is simply, he's, you know, they come to him with these titles, you know, that are very traditional. And yeah. he insists on using a different title because he wants them to understand he's much more than what they yeah. want to make him out to be. Exactly, exactly. That takes me to a little bit different space, but I do want to jump there. Um, <laughs> because one of the things that we go back to Philip is recognize, is, is his view that this is the son of Joseph. And that is mm-hmm. kind of an interesting, pro- this was a problem mm-hmm. for Calvin later on, um, that he would do this and, um, 
and 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 like that that was a false appellation and i'm finding scholars responding to it kind of differently what, what's your take on that piece well i mean he would have been known as the son of joseph because joseph was his father in mm -hmm. in in a legal sense you know i mean he grew up in a household where joseph was the husband and mary was mm -hmm. the wife and so he would have been seen as joseph's son by mm -hmm. by most people mm -hmm. um um, you know, interestingly, you know, in the Synoptic Gospels, where they have an infancy narrative, they emphasize, I mean, Matthew emphasizes Joseph's role, right, right. In, in the right. whole infancy yeah. narrative. Um, and yet, of course, obviously, the child is born of the Holy Spirit in Mary. And, and, and even, it's interesting, when Paul refers to Jesus' incarnation, he says that Jesus was born of woman. He doesn't say born of man. He says born of a woman. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so um, you have some different, I, I think you have some different ideas in the, in the traditions that you see reflected in the New Testament. And um, I mean, here, Andrew and Simon and Nathaniel, they don't have an understanding of Jesus as the one who was the incarnate son of God. Right. That, when they say yeah. son of God, that's not what they're thinking. They're thinking son of God in that he is the one whom God has anointed to be the right. Messiah, yes. a human figure. So they're not thinking in terms not of incarnate son of God as, as divinely right. incarnate, born only through a, 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 you know this this right. special this special um, conception through through Mary. They're just thinking of him as a human figure, and so as a human figure, he was Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. There you go. Yeah. There you go. We need to tie this, you know, obviously our, um, our revised common lectionary is taking us into Mark. <laughs> Woo. And so how did they get to John um, when we're going to be talking about Mark, yeah. you know, and explain, explain if there's some well, connections uh, between. You know, because Mark is a shorter gospel and because Mark doesn't have some of the elements that you have in Matthew and Luke, I think what happened with the revised common lectionary is that they... Um, they have used John to fill in some of the gaps that they perceived in Mark's gospel. And I, I, you know, we've talked about this briefly before. I think this is one of the flaws in the, in the Revised Common Lectionary is the fact that John really doesn't get treated as a gospel in its own right. Mm -hmm. It's sort of used to fill in the gaps. And uh, it probably reflects the state of biblical scholarship at the time when the Revised Common Lectionary was developed because biblical scholarship sort of tended to view the Synoptic Gospels as more historical and John's gospel is more theological. Unfortunately, I think that we as Christians, we love so many of the words from John. We tend to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. We tend, this, if we, especially Presbyterians, which, which aren't as apt to just throw down biblical passages as some other traditions, but nonetheless, um, a lot of those are from John. Yeah, I and think we do, <laughs> we, we do it in reverse. We focus on 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 who Jesus is based on John's gospel, and we focus on on the gospel message based on John's gospel, and we ignore the synoptics because we don't know what to make out of the kingdom of God. We, that just doesn't. Right. That's not a phrase. Right. That's not a concept that we understand. Yeah. So let's go grab those wonderful verses, and yet John's gospel as a whole is really worth studying as a whole, and that we do sprinkle it about is unfortunate because I'm wondering now if if you are 
providing these sermons on John and you walk into Mark and people are looking for a consistent message, is that impacting how they understand Mark? I mean, Well, I think it leads toward the, the phenomenon we talked about last week about how people tend collapsing. to collapse the Gospels. Mm -hmm. and, and unfortunately, you know, this, the, the lectionary kind of in, encourages that by, by doing this. It does. I think it does as well. Well, that is our first segment and we'll be back. Thanks. We're back, and uh, we're going to talk with Christy now a little bit about how the Reformers uh, read this passage in John's Gospel. So, uh, Christy, how did the Reformers read this passage? Sure. Well, in order to understand how the Reformers read this passage, you have to go back to their greatest inspiration. And so, all of the Reformers, including the Roman Catholic tradition um, and the post-Tridentine commenters, as well as um, our, our standard dudes, uh, Luther and Calvin, they are all looking at the tradition set forth by Erasmus of Rotterdam. You know, I have to say, I'm really surprised at that. I mean, I knew Erasmus was a big figure for, yeah. for that era in, in Europe, but I didn't realize he was so important Huge. for both sides of the Reformation. And of course, the, the Tridentine um, um, tradition refers to the Council of Trent, mm -hmm. which was sort of an anti-Reformation, anti-Protestant oh. Reformation oh, council get, of the Catholic Church. You're going to get yourself right? in a big, big trouble there, Alan. Um, and so let me let me jump in just a minute because Alan is going with a pretty understood concept of the Council of Trent, um, but scholars now really look at that as more of a Catholic Reformation oh, really? than a Counter-Reformation. And in fact, Interesting. in modern um, scholarship, and I still see, and this is where you see that kind of, of separation between the, histor the historians and the theologians, um, and the, the, the historical tradition right now is to call, instead of a Catholic Counter-Reformation, really just a Catholic Reformation. Well, and that so makes jumping. sense, because I know that, I know that um, they developed their own reforms mm -hmm. out of the Council of Trent mm -hmm. and out of that interaction you know, with the Protestant Reformation. Absolutely. Which, yeah, that's yeah. a positive thing. We shouldn't it's, see it's that. It's very positive. And I, I think you're, I mean, I think that makes sense. We shouldn't call it a counter-reformation because that's a negative term. And and there are some, I mean, there are some things that they did specifically to identify themselves of separately from, if you will, what, what becomes the Protestant tradition. Um, but they, to call it just a counter really is unfair to the reform movement that had really started before that. And we can look back to some of those early thinkers, I mean, like John Wycliffe and mm -hmm. Jan Hus, mm -hmm. who were seeing the need for reform. And they the stayed within the Catholic Church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Cardinal Caget, and I mean, all these people recognized, hey, there needs to be some things done. There needs to be some reform. Sure. And, but probably one of the biggest uh, proponents of reform was Erasmus of Rotterdam. And in fact, many people were surprised that he never left the Roman Catholic tradition. And um, even when it was pretty clear that there probably wasn't going to be a reconciliation. And I think that's interesting, but uh, it, it also it kind of makes sense. I mean, it's hard to jump from Mother Church, I mean, right? that's the tradition he, he lived mm -hmm. in, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and that was his experience. Right. And even when you look at, at Luther and Calvin, they all thought that they were the true church. Yeah. And that, they, that eventually, I think, maybe others would come to see the true church. And so it's an interesting... Um, 
it's an interesting how this division develops and ultimately frankly it's it's the lord's supper that keeps everyone divided apart right, i know which is i've always found that really sad yeah and to call out call out uh, my former history advisor uh dr amy burnett uh, she has spent a good portion of her her professional career looking at these nuances of the theology in the sacramental controversy um and again it's so interesting things today that we look at as being really not a big deal kept them divided kept them divided and kept them divided from the roman catholic church even with some really fine efforts by philip melanchthon and and martin bootser to try and bring people back together on the same page well you know i've often i've often remarked to myself that if you go to a lutheran service there's not a whole lot of difference between that and a catholic mass i mean there's a lot of similarity there's, there's a, a lot that there, they share. Absolutely. There's a lot yeah. of similarity. Part of it's that you're not going to call it the Mass. That's right. one of the big pieces right, right there. Right. But in There's turn, no veneration of Mary. Exactly. You don't have seven sacraments, so there are distinctions. <laughs> and you're not going to hold it up, and you're not going to hear the little bell, right, ding, ding, right. and those kinds of things. <laughs> but yeah, We might not want to explain that. The bell is supposed to signify the moment when the host, when, when the when the wafer and the, and the wine become the body well, and blood of exactly. Jesus. Exactly. That, that miracle that happens, mm. and that's not part of the Lutheran tradition. And yet, a lot of the liturgy is going to feel the same. It, did, it does. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It does, yeah. So that makes sense that they saw themselves as not really breaking from the church, but as being sort of the true church. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. So that takes us back to Erasmus. So Erasmus is really one of the main figures in what we call the Northern Renaissance. So you have to think about Renaissance Italy, and we're thinking of this whole rebirth of classical um ideas and and classical knowledge and a lot of this stuff comes over to us through the crusades through mm-hmm. kind of the reopening sure. of the uh of the middle east um, well and even some of the uh southern some of the ottoman scholars my understanding is fled from the crusades to europe and yep. brought for example text of uh, greek text and, yep. and text of aristotle yep. and things yep. like that you know that that the europeans had never right. seen Exactly. And you also have this rebirth. Mind you, by the it's the Middle Ages where we are really falling into our vernacular languages, right? Our, mm. our French, our Italian, our, um, German. our Spanish, our German, there, yes. There, there, isn't a, there isn't a unified German language at that point in time. Correct. There's not a unified <laughs> German language, but remember, Germany is never conquered by the Roman Empire. Right. So they never have that kind of uh, Latin common common language if right. you will that you were going to see in what was part of the roman the empire so parts, yeah. it's when that latin those latin um, languages fell apart yeah and they started to have their own unique regional yeah. variations yeah. that's where that develops yeah. right so then greek falls apart the people that spoke latin um, and read latin know that medieval latin is just horrible yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh in fact you're best off if you're going to read someone like Thomas Aquinas is to be able to understand a vernacular and then be able to kind of translate backwards. I mean, Mm. it's a very strange time. Mm. So all of a sudden you get the rebirth of these classical writers and you're getting to see eloquent Latin writers like Cicero coming to the head and people are reading this and Greek comes back in and people that begin to learn it again and understand it again. And of course with this scripture Mm -hmm. and what is that? 
what is the true scripture? Well, yeah, and so, some of the scholars were Greek scholars, and some of them were Hebrew scholars, exactly. and they brought that learning to to exactly. Europe, and that's where the reformers got it. Exactly. So here is Erasmus, and he is putting out his Greek New Testament. Here is Erasmus, and he is doing these commentaries on on scripture that that are new and they have new insight with this kind of what we would call humanist background and remember the humanism are is that is that rebirth of studies that really i hate to celebrate the human being but but these are studies of of history human and life. rhetoric and yeah. poetry yeah. and instead human of human culture a human culture exactly yeah. Yeah. and so whereas before it was all focused on on a religious setting i mean the you know the theology was the queen of the sciences exactly. and all the other studies flowed out of of uh of theology right the scholastic tradition right mm -hmm. where you're where you're the quadrivium and the trivium and you're talking about you know the study of mathematics and logic instead of uh instead of ethics mm -hmm. so you're getting these kind of a different approach so now here is erasmus and he is he is working through this and so he writes and this is um a paraphrase actually on the book of john which this paraphrase becomes kind of the backbone by which all of these 16th century and 17th century people, and frankly, I think influences to today, understand the book of John. Mm. Um, Maybe understand Jesus' life. And Jesus' life, right? Yeah. And it's kind of based on of a philosophy of Christ. And this is an idea that Christ came to work in and amongst the people to bring about the kingdom of heaven. It's this idea of this living Christ instead of Christ the King, which we have brought back in to our, our liturgy, but less emphasis on that than on this 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 Christ that came for us. Living presence. A living of presence. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. So uh, what an interesting shift, an important piece. And so everyone else jumps from that. And then of course Calvin is the one who says, look, we've got to We've got to look at the book of John. It's got to be the lens by which we understand all of the rest of the Gospels. That's yeah. central. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's where they come from. So we have to look at Erasmus for this. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, in my segment, we talked a lot about um, the use of titles for Jesus in John's Gospel. And I'm wondering, you know, I'm wondering what title or titles did the reformers tend to use for Jesus? But really, more what I'm thinking about here is who did they understand Jesus to be? What, what, do, we, what do we learn from the reformers right. about that? Now, remember, <laughs> part of the reformers, especially your magisterial reformers, your main dudes <laughs> and ladies, not, not your Anabaptists, um, not your radicals, um, they, they are trying to remain true to the Nicene tradition and Chalcedonian mm -hmm. tradition. So they are really trying to make sure they understand Christ as both God and man. Mm -hmm. That's just a huge piece of who they are. And in fact, they get into little little fights within as they're reading each other's texts about if they're going in the wrong direction. You know, so if, if you're looking at, um, you know, heresies, they like to accuse each other of heresies, although I think especially with, again, these, these people like Bootser and, and Melanchthon, that they are, they're, they're trying to be on the same page to some extent, right? But, you know, Calvin's accused of Nestorianism, where the, the two natures are working separately mm, all the yeah. time. And meanwhile, the Lutherans um, um, 
are are being accused of having an, a, an idea where the natures are collapsed. Mm. So um, into one and. These are, these are minor nuances, but this was a big part of the reformers trying to, just trying to define what the true church is. So, and the nature of the Christology was huge. So they focused on Jesus as fully God and fully human. But yes, that was the ultimate thing, is that it had to fit within that context of that, that tradition. And uh, <laughs> just on the side, oddly enough, this is still a problem we have today. Of right? course. Especially, yeah. especially as you're getting to these traditions that have decided to completely jump away from any kind of confession. They refuse to recognize it. And what happens, they go on these ugly paths of really not being able to define who Christ really is. So this passage is important for that because we are getting these titles of who Jesus is. Sure. So did they, if they had a title, which one would it be? You know, that was a fun thing to look at. It's just how are they referencing Jesus in their in their discussion they just always call Jesus Christ hmm. Christ yeah. um, sometimes you know our Lord Jesus Christ but Christ so they're using that as the kind of the the language by which they talk about about Jesus and I think interestingly enough kind of like we talked about in the Greek 500 times we're using Christ yeah. that's how they refer to Christ um, which I thought was I thought was kind of fun and and and, and to look at yeah did they ever spell out what that meant to them or was it just like a name that they i used? think that was really kind of the name that was just uh. kind of the common name but i mean they do spend there's a lot of emphasis just on on how jesus is all of these titles right how jesus is the the savior of the world i mean this is a big a big deal about christ's identity i think i think what they have adopted from the ancient world from the ancient church comes through to today they try to claim that they try to emphasize that and i think it comes through to us today that are in mainline protestant well i mean and i mean it makes a lot of sense that they're that they're focusing mainly on john's gospel because i mean that seems to be the idea is that jesus is the christ the savior of the world Mm -hmm, that's that's mm -hmm. kind of john's gospel kind of sets that tone Mm -hmm. yeah and and if you know there's one there's one emphasis that they have about john is that it's it's christ's divinity that comes through i mean they tend to look at the you remember they take all the synoptics and calvin collapses them right in particular there's some of that with john too but john is the one who points out christ's divinity in that unique way from the beginning and so that's where their emphasis is well and and i guess in you know in dialoguing with him i would say that perhaps the fact that um, there's more of an emphasis on him as Christ and the Son, and um, you know people call him the Son of God in John's Gospel. That makes sense, and yet I would want to push back and say there's just as much emphasis on Jesus as a divine figure, a figure acting with divine authority in the Synoptics as there is in John's Gospel. I, I think so too. Yeah. I think so too. Um, I think they're particularly impressed to how it's so tied together though, you know, like that, like mm-hmm. the image of the, of the ladder and, and God coming down the son of man. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's the kind of imagery for them. I think they see this as a very spiritual gospel. And of course, mm-hmm. what the beautiful poetry we talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, how it kind of draws you uh, in again, how we talk about these are the phrases that we want to repeat. When we tell mm-hmm. people who is Jesus, we often go to these these quotes from John to tell yeah, people, that's you true. know. That's true. So I think that's what they are getting at with it. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
We're back, and um, I have a question for Christy. Um, most people tend to see Jesus as the Son of God as a reference to his deity, and Jesus as the Son of Man as, as a reference to his humanity. You may have heard enough from me to, to know that, or to, to guess that I see that as a misconception, that in reality, Son of God was a human title, at least in Jesus' day, and Jesus uses the title Son of Man, referring to himself, to allude to his true identity, which is that he's much more than any human deliverer they could expect. And yet, that popular use of Son of God for Jesus as divine and Son of Man for Jesus as human persists. So I'm wondering, how can we help people straighten that notion out, really, so that they can read the Gospels better? You know, and I think that's such a hard question is to get people to think of. And I think because we are still in our human limitations in awe over who Jesus is, right? In, in our minds, it's not logical. And, and when you talk to someone who's on the logic tra track, they, they haven't bought into the divinity of Christ at all. Or vice versa, you get these people that are so spiritual that they, I mean, the same heresies mm -hmm. take place mm -hmm. in their interpretation of this. Jesus and, was either a human being or he was a divine yeah. being. He was not both. And even we tell people both, and even if they can give lip service to that, it is still I think hard. when push comes to shove, most people in a church setting would fall down on Jesus as a divine being rather than Jesus as a human being. Yeah, yeah, and it, I think it depends it depends who you spend your day with. You know, mm -hmm. if I go up on the floor of the history department, I'm going to find the opposite. <laughs> um, you know, if if I go, um, yeah, but if I go into the church service, I'm going to find exactly what you suggested that this would fall on this divine being. So, how do you get people to cl to see both? And and I think that's part of it. I think part of it is in learning to educate people about these terms, the way Alan has suggested, I think it's part of it. Get them to see, of, oh, son of God, that's a human term for Jesus. That's interesting. I mean, it's, it's like, to me, it's like strengthening a braid. It's like you have a braid of a concept and you double on top of it um, because you get these, these terms that, that mix together. I mean, I think it's, it's absolutely brilliant. But I think the other piece of that is to let people experience God and experience God's presence in their lives. And that's about um, getting people involved with, with the um, various types of um, practices, uh, the spiritual disciplines that, uh, that help them be in God's presence. So, you know, your, your scripture reading is really, really important. Your, you know, attending worship is important. Your prayer is important. Um, you know, all of these pieces, that's what helps you experience uh, the living Christ, sure, I think. Sure. Well, and I would agree with that. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to play devil's advocate a Do, little bit here because, fine. because the disciplines and worship and all of that, you know, tends to perpetuate the traditional understanding that has been around this, this idea of, of, of Jesus as the son of God, as a divine figure and Jesus as the son of man as a human figure has been around for a long time. True. And so, I mean, how do we buck 20 centuries of tradition, so to speak? <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but I, I, I think, um, you know, sometimes we talk about people that get it. We've talked about that before. I had this conversation with my college students a couple days ago, and you can go through the motions and still not 
get it. I, I know. I've and preached on this many times. Exactly. <laughs> and and so I had a professor that, that was really big on the magic eye. Remember the magic eye? Mm-hmm. And you could sit there and look at this picture of all these like little waves and things and mm-hmm. have no idea. But there's a hidden picture within. Mm-hmm. And you right. have to kind of let yourself sit right. and concentrate. And then you can see the, Your eyes the real sort of defocus. Picture. Yes. Yeah. And it kind of reminds me of that. You could sit there and spend your whole life with these these kind of appellations in, in front of you, and you don't really understand what they mean until you let yourself kind of be into the moment. And I I don't know how to tell people to do that. And true confession, I can never see what's. I know. <laughs> I, I have, I've had a hard time with some of those picture. myself. But yeah. um, you know, this is from uh, Emma Collier, who's a, a theologian specialist, T.F. Torrance, that um, was a professor of mine, but. I like that imagery because I think it helps us think about the complexities mm, of sure. of God and Christ, um, God, Son of God and Son of Man working together. Um, well, and again, I, I hate to belabor the point, but I think it's it's important because I, you know I, my goal is to help people read the Gospels better. As a historian, how do you help people? I guess get a clearer understanding and and move beyond. A misunderstanding that that's been perpetuated for for a long time, perhaps. Well, I for me and I, and why I was first attracted to history, um, because there's this whole pattern by which people are understanding over the years. I mean, and we we we're looking at the development of the church. We're looking at the development of confessions that I that that are clear as to who Jesus is and the development of that Christology and why it has to be that way. Why Jesus is who and, and why this is a correct understanding. And I think that's a really big piece then of mm. understanding that this these ancient words which fit that time grow with us to today. Again as part of that living Christ, that's part of that historical development. You know, so maybe reclaiming the church, the Christian tradition through the through the confessions and creeds. I think that's a huge way of doing it. You know, it reminds me. So it it seems like some people talk about, well, I live for today, but what do we live for? You know, when we talk about ultimately the experience we have now is exciting, but remembering that experience Mm -hmm. is most exciting. What if you had the experience and you forgot about it the next hour or the next day? The experience would be meaningless. Mm-hmm. It's we build up who we are through the experiences that we have, which right. is partly why Jesus has to be fully human. Yeah. Because we can't we can't even interact with Jesus if Jesus wasn't. Right. right. And so that part is huge. And yet, on the other hand, to be the creator that made us even value why we care, right? God, Jesus has to be fully God. Yeah. And so those pieces are important, I guess. They are. Mm-hmm. They are indeed. All right. That's cool. Now, you know, <clears throat> I do think our image of who Jesus is tends to define our faith to a significant degree. Yes. And so I'm wondering, you know, I asked you, you know, what, 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 were the, what was the title that the Reformers used? I'm wondering, what do you think the primary title for Jesus is today? And and and. What understanding of Jesus uh, does that title or those titles reflect in terms of how people see Jesus today? And Alan's looking at my notes because I keep thinking of Will Ferrell and Sweet Baby, Sweet Baby Jesus from <laughs> Oh, I know, I know. Isn't that the worst? <laughs> 
And oh. how many people can quote that? I know. They can't I know. Any scripture. I know. <laughs> Sweet little worst. baby Jesus. Oh, goodness <laughs> Not not fair, but I do think um, I do think we tend to to um, again if we're looking at popular culture, we overemphasize Christmas. Um, to the point of people see this baby Jesus and they don't really understand what the whole part of the hope is about. Yeah. They just think they're celebrating this birth. And because people tend to fall away from the tradition, then they come at Easter, but they don't even know what Easter is. Yeah. And so um, Easter is about the Easter bunny. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and I'm not really being quite fair because that is an extreme example. But I. No, I think, I think accessing Jesus through. The baby in the manger. That's kind of an easy access point for most people. Mm -hmm. That's a warm, fuzzy place. And people want to feel warm and fuzzy about their religion, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. baby Jesus is 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 kind of a, you know, that makes sense that our culture sees Jesus as the baby Jesus. Mm -hmm. I think so. I yeah. think that happens a lot. Now, when I did some chaplaincy work um, at a Roman Catholic hospital, of course, every room had to have a crucifix. Of course, and you know it was pretty interesting as you as you sat there with people holding their hand. And if you're Protestant and you're not really accustomed to having crucifix in front of you and contemplating a dying Jesus, I mean that's a very different space. It is, um, and it's a very meaningful space. Um, and it's yet while we don't while we want to focus on the resurrection. Um, there is something about that human uh, Jesus um, dying on the cross, that very human humanity that we get there. And, and as I understand it, th there is a rationale behind the crucifix. And it is not to say that Jesus is not risen. It is to say that Jesus did suffer and die Suffered. for us. Mm -hmm. And therefore, he can sympathize mm -hmm. with our mm -hmm. weaknesses and our suffering. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows is the idea mm -hmm. behind the crucifix. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know there are a lot of Protestants who like just despise the crucifix. I think it's a beautiful symbol myself. It, it really, it really is. And, you know, when you're watching these people um, that are suffering and then mm -hmm. you realize Christ suffered, yeah, um, it's pretty, it's pretty pretty meaningful it's pretty meaningful. <laughs> i'm a lot more comfortable if the only if the only image of jesus is the crucifix i'm a lot more comfortable with that than sweet, sweet little, little baby, baby jesus, jesus. <laughs> i'm a lot more comfortable with that definitely yeah you know and for me i, th I think of jesus as the fr the friend or the buddy and yeah we've all seen probably we've all seen the meme with buddy jesus where he's pointing <laughs> his finger and 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 you know winking his eye at you and giving you a great big salesman smile you know and sorry for right. anybody who's in sales i don't mean to offend you there but it's you know that's obviously again an extreme notion of jesus the friend right and yeah i think we can see jesus as a friend to us all mm -hmm. and yet that you know sweet little baby jesus jesus the buddy they don't really um get at the true identity of who jesus is and that's where we turn to the gospels it seems to me for you know as i said earlier i think part of the reason why john's gospel includes all these various titles is because i think john's wanting to say these are appropriate titles to use for jesus right now you know obviously 
king of Israel is one that's that's corrected by the New Testament tradition because he's not just the king of Israel. Right. He's the king of kings. Mm-hmm. But he's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. He is mm-hmm. the Messiah. Uh, he is the son of God uh, in, in the sense of being the one anointed by God to come and fulfill God's purpose for mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he is also the son of man in that he is the one who has received divine authority and, and the um, position of ruling uh, over uh, over all peoples uh, mm-hmm. eternally. Mm-hmm. What, which is why I like, <laughs> you know, what in in our in our, if I will, our, our Protestant vernacular, our, our Presbyterian using Christ for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about language, right? Um, and um, in fact, if you come to Alan's church, he's even more precise. He he, he says Jesus the Christ. Our Lord and Savior, Our Jesus Lord the Christ. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus the yep. Christ. Let me put the whole thing on yep. there. It is really, really beautiful. And he's one of the very few people that I know that, that use that precision of language. And yet, it really, really alerts you to who Jesus is. He's Lord. He is Lord. He's Savior. He's Savior. He's Jesus. He's Jesus. And he's the Christ. We yeah. have become, we, we have even, most of us, I would say have collapsed that to just Jesus Christ. But when you mm-hmm. when you use it the way Alan does, I it's it's awesome. And being in service with him, it's this very awesome experience. Um and I, I don't mean that in the nineteen eighties awesome way. I mean that in the awe of God, like coming mm-hmm. down. It's a it's a it it is is a presence that I don't experience in very many spaces. And I think it's I think it's because he of his careful use of language when he talks about Jesus. Wow, thanks, Christy. So, so uh, I'm wondering, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but when you're when you're in worship, how do you refer to Jesus? You know, I tend to be more of a traditional Presbyterian. I think that's because what I grew up with. So I tend to say Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. However, and I've been thinking about that actually again, and, and thinking maybe I should be using this other language because it is so awesome. Um, and it, it sets this tone. Uh, and, and I have to say, um, the, the, the space I'm serving right now tends to be have a little bit more of a, a folksy feel, which I'd like for many reasons. And, and I think it, I think it, I think it's very welcoming, especially people maybe don't have a church tradition. There's a very welcoming sense in that space. And, and it reflects to me, uh, we don't go as so far as just to use the Jesus language, mm-hmm. um, but yet, I'm wondering how formal of language I can use in there that would still fit that that particular space. Um, yeah. Well, and you know, I've had the same question because you know that my church is pretty folksy as well. And yet I have these phrases that I use intentionally, our Lord and Savior, mm-hmm, Jesus mm-hmm. the Christ. Uh, when I pray, I pray to the merciful and majestic God. I'm referencing God's eminence, mm-hmm. God's compassionate presence, and yet God's transcendence you know the, the his his power and glory mm-hmm. through that phrase and i do that intentionally mm-hmm. uh, i have other phrases that i use every sunday and mm-hmm. and it's funny because even in confirmation the kids in confirmation class can can recite some of these phrases exactly. because i've i say them every sunday well and he has this wonderful like the little welcome before we do the call to worship here if you would come here that is just right out of the letters grace and, and peace beautiful. to you from and god our like, father <gasps> from our lord and savior jesus the christ and from the holy spirit who gives us new life it's yeah. awesome yeah. i mean it's really 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 awesome but i do think we serve in different spaces and it, one of the 
you know, I'm kind of jumping away from our Presbyterian tradition, but one of the things right now, especially in these more uh, contemporary churches, is just to use Jesus language. You know, mm-hmm. we, we completely cross off that, yeah. that, that, that. No Jesus, Trinitarian no language. No Trinitarian language. Yeah. And I, I, I told this to Alan before we started, but I wanted to give you a sense of how I find this dangerous. And this happened to me when my, my father passed. I was assigned a chaplain, a very nice lady. But her only use of, of Christ was with Jesus language. And the problem for me was I, I found it very, very upsetting because it wasn't my tradition, because it denied who Christ was. I mean, my dad was dying, and, and it, it wasn't time for Jesus the buddy. It was time for our Jesus Lord Christ. and Savior, Lord Jesus, and Savior the Christ. Jesus the Christ. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And here my dad is, and he has Alzheimer's, and he can't speak. And I'm thinking, this is going to be upsetting to him. This is not who Jesus is. This is not who Jesus is in, in, full, in the fullness. This is not um, Jesus the Christ. Um, this, and, and it was very ups, it was upsetting to me, and I was worried it was going to be upsetting to Dad. And um, I think we have to be careful about language, and I think it's part of our responsibility to to work with language with our with. And, and I'm saying this fully, admitting that I need work. I have work to do because um, I think. I think we need. To, I think that's going to help us bridge this gap here between this problem mm-hmm. that we have if we are using correct language. You know, I, I I don't know for sure. You know, I spent some time in the Baptist world, and then that's where some of that language gets mm-hmm. used. And my impression is, I think, in some respects, the church traditionally, going back centuries, has has exalted Jesus so highly that they've turned him into this figure that was viewed as inaccessible. And so in that evangelical tradition primarily that, that, that uses that language, I think their emphasis is try to, try to make Jesus more relatable, you know, as, as a, someone who cares and someone who loves you and, is, and, and knows you and is here and, and even that, that sense of presence. And so I think, I think it's well-intentioned, but I agree with you. Uh, it, you know, it, it sells Jesus short. I think mm-hmm. it, it just, it, and it doesn't reflect the gospel tradition and, and it doesn't reflect the Christian tradition. Right. And it certainly doesn't reflect our Presbyterian tradition. And uh, so I, I just, I, 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 I'm very sorry that you had to endure that. That's, uh, that, it was, that was painful for me. I, I would it think really it would was. be. Yeah. It really was. It, it, it was hard. And it was hard to, to, to be in that space. And I think that's our, you know, again, using, using language, um, using language that honors Christ, especially in our, in our worship services is probably our best way of bridging this, this sure. problem. <laughs> well, and that's, that's where we started is with, with the titles of Jesus in, in this passage of John's gospel. It is. Yeah. Well, thanks for a lively discussion. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.